live on several different places and then it'll be released as a podcast as our normal uh, recording is on monday next week perfect amundo i'm so sorry i walked in a minute late no don't worry we were just talking about how you're probably a very busy guy and we should just be honored that you graced us with your presence oh well that sounds about right i'm kidding (laughs) (laughs) humble too (laughs) Hilarious. And more and more, you sound like us, Victor. <laughs> awesome. um, so, since you're a comedian, I feel like there really are no um, boundaries. Like, you'll be pretty comfortable with whatever comes up. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that is a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, uh... You don't get offended oh. easily, do you? So mom, uh... <laughs> Can we have your permission to just be jerks? <laughs> no, of course not. You know what, though? What I loved is um, I saw your uh, coloring book for anti-racism. Oh, yeah. The anti-racism activity book. Yeah, yeah. And um, the word search, I, I watched your little uh, promotional clip on it. <laughs> And the nice. word search was kind of shocking. Like, really? That article just came out like a couple of years ago? Yeah, it was a few years back. Like, such a such a weird... I mean, it's not really weird. It's just the truth. And so it's. I think it's shocking for people to see all of the information in one place, though. Because, uh, you know, it's like a lot of people don't understand. And a lot of people don't understand just like how hard it is sometimes just like if your name is a, if your name is a specific way you don't get called in for job interviews that sucks and yeah. so like yeah it, it, i think it is shocking for people like if your name is like say mark or greg like it never ha- that doesn't happen like that no. <laughs> but if your name is Lashawn, it's yeah. over yeah you don't or feel like Kyrie. exactly totally yeah. unfair <laughs> Totally and it's just unfair. one one small sample of systemic racism that people are really un, still unconscious about. Yeah, and I get that people are tired. Like it is tiring. It's tiring to talk about racism all the time and it's tiring to hear about it. But the unfortunate side is that whether or not we're tired, it's it's there. <laughs> so I just uh well, put it all together yeah, in a book people and tried to make it easy. People of privilege should imagine how exhausting it is to be a person of color because there's (laughs) no like we can take a break from the conversation as people of privilege. But people of color don't really get a break from being people of color. Oh, not at all. And so I just I just think that what I'm trying to do with the book is not beat people over the head, but I'm trying to like put everything in one place and make it funny how I write it and then just basically say, Hey, here's a lot of stuff that's out there that we can all agree on. It's kind of messed up. That's, that's all I'm really saying with the book. And I think most people get it. So as a comedy book, is it successful? Yeah. Um, I, I'll tell you what I hear over and over again. We is, this book was on my coffee table. A friend of mine looked at it on my coffee table and bought one. And it happens over and over again. I get that conversation all the time. That is awesome. And I do hope that it's a conversation we get less and less tired about, because as you both have said, um, part of our privilege is when we walk out the door, we don't have to deal with it. And when a person of color walks out the door, they're dealing with it. Whether yeah, they definitely. Want yeah. So I do have a question because part of the whole um, conversation yeah, it's you know, light skin, dark skin um, people of color, uh-huh. and you, my friend, are a very light skinned individual. 
Um, Absolutely. The lightest, some might yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. Lighter than me. <laughs> so how has that played? Because one of the things I think you said is you have learned to exist in places that were not created for you. Uh, absolutely. I've, I've had to, I've had to force my way in and I have to get people to understand, um, understand. Well, here's the thing they're in the entertainment world, uh, in the entertainment world, the comedy world, the writing world and the acting world, uh, the New Yorker cartoonist world, um, just a lot of different worlds. Very rarely do they say, you know what we need here? A black person with albinism. So very, nobody's thinking of me. So I have to get in there and kind of like just do it myself. Yeah. Do you ever hear, well, you're not blind enough. We really need someone who's a little more blind than you. Um, no. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) But you've done very well creating space for yourself, I would say. I think so. I'm pretty I'm pretty proud of where I am right now. I mean, there's still a long way to go, but I'm pretty happy with what I've done so far, which is uh, to to make things, uh, produce things, make works of art that I feel that really connect with people. And that's the point, like whatever I'm making, I'm just trying to like, I'm trying to put a message out there. And then also I've turned it into a business for myself, uh, you know, making this stuff. So I'm pretty happy with that too. Did you know as a young child that you wanted to be in the entertainment industry? Uh, no, actually I thought I wanted to be a computer programmer and now I do both, which is kind of crazy. But, uh, (laughs) Yeah, when I was younger, I really just wanted, I was just straight up into computers. And then now, like, I, I mean, that's still part of my life. Like, I have two software patents that are all just like computer programs. So, like, I do that all the time. I, I, I even though I am also a comedian and an actor and a producer of uh, entertainment, like, I still kind of do the nuts and bolts computer programming because I enjoy it. Damn. Um, so do you, what was the impetus to step up on the um, stand-up, the stand-up comedy, Mike? Uh, when I was in high school, I had a teacher who was tired of me trying to make jokes in class. And he was like, if you, if you go out and do it on stage, I will give you an A. Just stop. <laughs> and then I was like, okay. And then I did it. And I was terrible. Um, I did a 45 minute show, which only he and his wife showed up to. And I was like 17. And then so like, but he gave me an A and then I never went back to stand up until years later when I moved to New York. <laughs> wow, how many what was it that made you go back? Like, what yeah. did you discover about yourself that had you think, oh, this is something I've left behind that I need to re re get acquainted with? Someone told me specifically to go back to stand-up comedy. I'll tell you what happened, which is I used to be part of this group, and we were the hot shit in Minneapolis. We're called, like, the Bad Mama Jammas. And in this group, there are just, like, a bunch of funny people, some of whom have become famous. Like, you have uh, Colton Dunn, who played um, Garrett on Superstore, like the guy in the wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Like, he was in this group in Minneapolis, too. And then um, I think there's a couple of other people who have no- who've done stuff. With the, but like our group was connected to like, um, the dead L wives. Like we, we're both, both of us were offshoot groups of comedy sports, which is this national comedy chain. And then it's an improv comedy show. And then those, those shows would spawn sub improv sketch groups. And those improv sketch groups would generally have like very talented people who do cool stuff. And we were in Minnesota and there was another group named the Dead Ale Wives in Wisconsin who we were friends with. And the Dead Ale Wives, um, you may know now as Dan Harmon and Rob Schraub, who are executive producers of uh, Rick and Morty. And then so we were funny. Okay. And then so like we did a bunch of shows and then at one point, we were invited to do the show in Chicago for HBO to like see if HBO was going to put money into us. And we bombed hard. Okay. Like we bombed so hard. And then the agent that had, uh, that had found us and brought us there, she said to me, she goes, uh, Hey, this is a terrible show. HBO is not moving forward. You're funny in it. You should do stand up alone so you don't have to rely on other people. That's what she said. And, that's and that I, got you back in front of the mic as an I, individual comic. 
Yeah, I, t- I took her. I took her to heart. I was just like, okay. I mean, I assumed that she knew what she was talking about, so <laughs> I tried to so, go back into Victor. Wh- why are you funny? Um, why am I? F- oh, it's easy to say. I'm I'm funny because I can look at things that other people see, but then point out something which is obvious that they haven't seen, and I can do that over and over again. Okay, what about my face is funny? The fact that you asked about it, that's hilarious. <laughs> Thank you. See, there you go. <laughs> that, my friends, is how jokes work. <laughs> what does KSN mean? Oh, that stands for King Supernuts. King Supernuts. <laughs> well, Did you somehow avoid Elephantitis or something? What, what does that mean? No, King Supernuts is my rap name. So, oh. uh Rachel Teichman, who is the co-host of my podcast, Wikilisten, she is actually a licensed social worker. And when mm-hmm. we initially made the podcast, she demanded that her initials LMSW, because she'd just gotten her degree, she demanded that her initials be included by her name. She's like, I oh. earned it, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then I was like, fine, I'm putting on initials, too. <laughs> nice. Right. Greg, so what then, are your initials going to be? The KSN. Uh, Those are my initials. No, but Victor, I got yours. What's Greg? What are your initials going to be? Uh, SWB. <laughs> oh, Stupid oh. white boy. Oh, that's it's easy funny to because remember. <laughs> when I was in junior high school, uh, a couple of my co my my friends called me AWB for average <laughs> white boy. <laughs> Did you? There, who's that guy who? Who sings that song? Like I'm a regular, average, everyday dude, or that's you know he does this he does a rap song. Uh, what is his know. name? It's so that's funny. Ringing a bell. I'm a, I'm a regular, average, everyday guy. And he goes, I he, you know, like he goes, I walk to the store very slow, motherfucker. Can I swear yeah. on this? I don't even know if I could. Uh, I don't know. Really either. Funny. You're, I'm drawing a blank, but now I'm super curious. I want to go find out. It's so funny. It's really funny. I'm gonna find out in the background while we're talking. Ah, you're our kind of guy. We consult Google a lot when we're on this show, so this is great. You're fitting right in. <laughs> so, now, AWB I, and SWB, those are going to be our initials, Greg? Well, mine, you don't get I have one. an MF in AWB. Yeah, you could be AWB. <laughs> I'll be AWB. <laughs> it's John LaHoy. It's okay. John LaHoy, everyday normal guy. So. Oh, okay. All right. Nice. So if I may ask, um, you are legally blind, but it seems like you have some sight. What is legally? Uh, You know, when I explain it to you, you're going to feel stupid. But here it is. Legally blind means that at some point the law has to draw a line and say, if you see worse than this line, we're calling you blind. So that's it's legally blind. So, like, I'm not totally blind. But I'm I'm blind enough that the law says, okay, you're in the blind category. Can you drive? Uh, I can drive in California. Can't drive in New York. Isn't oh, that crazy? That is crazy. Because <laughs> one of my cousins is legally blind. And the big joke is because he drives everywhere. Yeah. And- it depends on what state you're in. And then it also depends how, how good your vision is corrected. Your vision has to be your corrected vision has to be to a certain level. Also, and there's people who are legally blind without their glasses, but I continue to be legally blind with my glasses in New York state. But in, in California, I'm just over the line. Wow. That's crazy. So you're really, really waiting patiently for automated driving to come. Can't along. wait. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot wait. Yeah. I hear it's close. <laughs> I'm gonna. I, I think I'm gonna write a letter to Tesla and see if they can just give like hook me up because I'll be like, hey man, Maybe I, got you a, could... I, I got a little bit of you know, I'm a I'm a D level star. <laughs> give me a car. <laughs> yeah, give you a car and a show. Like yeah. instead of comedians in cars with coffee, we could have something like blind people driving with banter. Oh my god, that is a great idea. I'm gonna reach out to them and see if they'll do it. I'll be like, hey guys. Cool. I want to come on in the show if you get that going. I want to. I'd love to come on. I, I will I wear um, a blindfold. I will definitely. I will definitely try to do that because I found so six years ago when I really started trying to like become not just a uh, working entertainment but also an entrepreneur. So six years ago, I found out that like all of those things that I've had an idea for, and then I'm like, ah, that would be that would be great. 
and then I just never do it. When I just go through and start doing them, uh, a lot of them actually happen. Like you can get like, and so like what you just said, like I could, I could, I mean, how long does it take to write Tesla a letter? Like not that long. And if they like, if they like the idea, they'll write back. And if they don't, no big deal. But you could also just start to never do it. You could also just start like a Twitter campaign where you go out and uh, ride around in cars with, well, you need the autonomous driving feature. That's the problem there. Exactly. Yeah, but you I don't think want it, would... it to be blind, legally blind people driving autonomous cars with banter, crashing into things. That wouldn't be the show we want to show. I think the easiest thing to do, though, would be just to reach out to whoever is the press person or the business mm. development person for that the autonomous driving and be like, Hey, I'd love to, you know, be an autonomous driver. I mean, I'd love to be a test subject and this is who I am. This is what I do. Blah, 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 blah. You maybe have a chance. Can you give us another example of some of the things that you've successfully entrepreneured? Um, yeah, I have a app that is launching right now that is, um, causing a lot of buzz, uh, because so basically I, so I have a different, I have a different podcast, which is just kind of like a podcast where I teach people how to do things in the entertainment industry, like the mechanics of it. Like this mm-hmm. is what happens in a pitch meeting, like stuff like that. And then I, w- I had the idea of taking those popular, ep- the most popular episodes and turning them into an ebook. Okay. And then, so when I, yeah. So when I started doing that, I was like going through the transcript and turning it into an ebook. And I was like, I think I could just train AI to do this because all it is, is going through reading something, taking notes, reformatting it into like structured text, which is in this case is an ebook. Right. And then, so I started that process of doing that. And when I was done, I basically had an app where like you press a, it's one click and it takes your thoughts and your words and then writes a first draft of a book for you. And then, so that's called the magic book of fire. And so that, so we launched it and people really like it already. Um, and then we've, then I realized that we could build businesses on top of it. So now we have this thing that can take anybody's speech and turn into ebook, but then you could turn when people have a, um, an idea summit and people do speeches, all those speeches could be turned into books immediately and delivered the first draft the next day. Uh, when you, uh, in the corporate world, in the corporate world, there's all kinds of um, narrative documents that have to be done. For instance, like in a bank, they have to do a suspicious activity report. So now we have somebody who's starting to develop like the corporate line of work for the Magic Book of Fire. So like it's it's basically where I take what I do normally, which is like, you know, I'm a podcaster, but then I'm stacking on top of that like, oh, I can I can build an app that does this thing. And now, Oh, this app can do all this other stuff. And so I, it basically what I've been studying for the past six years with entrepreneurship is just basically figuring out how to recognize value and how to get to those people who, who want it the most. Hmm. (laughs) Um, Figuring out, yeah, I'm exhausting. (laughs) 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 Ever. Um, so what have you found for the entertainment industry? What is the value a people in a pitch meeting are looking for? In a pitch meeting? Yeah. Um, I guess it depends on who you're pitching to. But uh, this is a couple of secrets about pitch meetings. One, oh, he left. Well, <laughs> he's unfortunately, I bet you his phone just blew up. He double booked himself. Uh, he's in his car trying to he'll probably be back on oh okay uh well so for a pitch meeting what people are mostly looking for is um sorry let me let me uh just back up one second because i want to point out that in most pitch meetings the person that you're pitching to has to turn around and pitch to somebody else okay so that's one thing that you should be aware of so that's why in a pitch meeting what you need to do is you need to pitch to to, you need to pitch them something that already seems like it works. It already seems like it is a great story. It already seems like it's a great idea. You need to pitch to them something that already works. Okay. And then when you pitch them this thing, when you pitch them this thing that already works, uh, you give them material that 
shows how it works that a moron can understand. Why? Because they have to turn around and pitch somebody else. You don't trust them to pitch your project. Give them material that will pitch your project for you that's good enough. And so in a pitch meeting, all they really want, usually the person that you're pitching to, what they want is something that makes them look good when they turn around and pitch to their boss. So if you bring them something that looks good and for when they turn around and pitch to the boss, that's what they want at your average pitch meeting. And when you say looks good, is part of that like a visual deck that looks good and is... Definitely. Definitely. Part of that is a visual deck, but another part of that is kind of like researching who you're pitching to because often different companies will have right. uh, different things that they're looking for. And if you, if you make them look good, basically then they'll, it'll, they'll take it up the ladder. Apologize for my uh, absence. I'm dealing with, um, temperature issues in my location that prevented my ability to broadcast Ah, back for now. You may see me disappear again, but I'm super excited to learn about this because I want to start to engage with you uh, more deeply in that because I have a film I want to pitch. And <laughs> yeah, we to... actually called you to this just so we can pitch you our ideas. No, that's, <laughs> not what, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I, I actually want to take um, the time to connect to what you're doing through your podcast and get more information about of all of that and then perhaps go deeper if I find my path that way. Yeah, you definitely you definitely should. I mean, the podcast is all about... The, I mean, that podcast, which is called the Arts Academy Podcast, and the other podcast I mentioned was Rachel with the uh, letters is called Wikilisten. Um, Wikilisten. But the Arts Academy Podcast is basically a podcast that is born from the fact that like people would always ask me how to do things, and I would just tell them, and then eventually I was like, I just want to have a place where I can just point and go listen to that episode rather than bother me. <laughs> so I started the podcast. And so every time people ask me questions, I just make it an episode of the podcast. Or if the episode already exists, I just say, go find that episode. If it's okay with you all, this is kind of going back to what I was originally asking, because I'm hearing dialogues about race and racism. It's come up that light skin and dark skin, even amongst people of color, is an issue. And you seem like an individual who is actually very immersed in the conversation of racism Uh amongst friends and peers. So I apologize if I'm going to say this term wrong, but you're... Oh, I can't wait. (laughs) <laughs> albino is like how would, uh, you were born albinism, albinism. <laughs> albinism. yeah mark's right <laughs> albinism that's okay do, so, no but pe- some people do say albinoism that is not not 100 percent wrong okay but so albinism the, is what most people say al- albinism how when you're in conversation about race amongst people of color how does that come up for you well, it comes up a lot Well, be, because I have a very peculiar view on race, I think, because I have been around uh, white people when they did not know someone black was around and had and have people just like, you know, let it fly. And I've been around black people when they thought I was white. Uh, and I've seen I've seen just like close up how people treat other races uh and I can just say across the board, treating people any different because of the color of their skin is stupid. I'm sorry to disappoint everybody. It's just straight up dumb. <laughs> and that includes albinism. <laughs> yeah, include, yeah. Don't just because somebody looks different, don't treat them different. It's, it's dumb. Don't do that. It's stupid. Even if you. And here's the thing. Don't think that you're not like everybody's like, I'm not racist. Don't do that. Okay. Everybody's racist. And just be uh, recognize the fact that you are racist because then you can act against it. You can be like, Hey, I did grow up in a society that's predisposed to treat certain people of color like this. I'm going to keep an eye out for it and not do it myself because I realize that things do affect me. And I know for a fact that they do. I have friends who are like, uh, Hey, 
Victor, I don't see color. It doesn't even bother me. I'm like, why are you telling me then? If you don't see color, how'd you find me? And I'm a black albino. You've had to work hard. So seriously, everybody's racist. Be racist. Be honest about it. And just don't. And then recognize those things and work, and work against them. You're kind of a unicorn in the conversation. I am. <laughs> so... This is so great because both Greg and I have been through a program that helps us unpack a lot of this stuff. And, and we are uh, admitted uh, racists who have been trained to, uh, trained to, to recognize it and, and willing to, to do the work to continually every day look at and restore integrity around the ways that we still have blind spots to it. And, and that's part of what this podcast is really about is how can we have these conversations in a more lighthearted way that makes it more digestible and therefore increases the productivity of this process of decolonizing everybody's head. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that people just being honest about it and like, okay, it exists. First of all, then just like, people feel personally attacked like when often in conversations about race for one reason or another, they feel personally attacked or personally maligned. Um, but if you take all that out, like just the, the, the nuts and bolts of it is everybody mostly agrees on all the same things. Some people unreasonably cling to certain things or, but, but for the most part, most reasonable people believe a lot of the same things. It's just, it's just, it's just people freak out when the conversation comes up. So have you personally experienced where something wasn't offered to you because of your albinism? Like you walked in and they thought, oh, Victor's coming in and he's X, but you actually get in the room and you're Y and they're like, um, you know, where they're not saying outright, but you knew. <laughs> you're saying that, that am I suspicious of people? <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure that happened a lot. I'm sure of it. The world is against me, and I will laugh. Um, No, I guess. Well, I mean, there's no way to know for sure. Your question is, uh, I have no, there's no way to know for sure. It's just, that would just be my thoughts ruminating, being like, ooh, they passed me over because I'm different. Like I, like you, you said, you described a situation where you walked into a room, you don't know for sure, but then. You just assume, uh, like, it. how would I know? Yeah. I don't know. I guess that there's um, a woman in my life who's like a mom to me. And Is it your mom? No, she. my mom's dead. wasn't oh, my fault. She died sorry. on her own. No, but, uh, <laughs> no, it's all good. But this woman's <laughs> been a part of my life since I was in high school. You know, her son is like a brother to me. And there are people of color. And there's times where I think, like, oh, I'd love to be in conversation with them. But I wonder, just because we got so much history, if even me bringing up race is creating a fire that isn't necessary. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I think that there's two sides of that. There are people like yourself who are just generally curious. And then there's people who do take umbrage. Uh, when people like start talking about race, or, like I, and and rightfully so too, because a lot of black people are tired of of like when George Floyd, when George Floyd's murder happened, a lot of white people were running to black people and going basically being like, please tell me I'm one of the good ones, please tell me, please tell me, please tell me, please tell me, and then black people were like, please shut the fuck up, leave us alone, thank you, and so it's not our labor to do. And so yeah, so sometimes sometimes it's a chore, but then but but also. It depends. Like, for instance, uh, in, in, a, in a similar vein, people often ask me about albinism. And then some people who have albinism do not like talking about albinism with people because they're like, uh, you know, I get so many questions. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. But I always try to handle questions reasonably because eventually somebody has to, you know. So uh, I hope that if you have questions, people will talk to you. But then again, it's not their duty, so I don't have to. So, but good luck. (laughs) Well, I was thinking about media, like all the media I can think of where an individual is albino in the story. They are a nemesis. They are a villain. I I can't think of a story that comes to mind 
where a person with albinism is the hero. Or- um, there's a there's a series of books uh, about a warrior named Elric who is an albino hero. So. I don't uh, know. so- I but I only I'm, know that probably. Actually, people who like Dungeons and Dragons know this too. Uh, okay, um, but I mean, you're right. Things, though, there's not a lot. Yeah, like visual <laughs> media. The most recent that comes to mind is that um, Da Vinci Code or the Brown movie. Da Vinci Code. I actually auditioned for it. Didn't get it. Oh man! Well, I wish you would have got it. I well, it, it it was actually back when I was doing roles that were just like the albino guy and so i started out like that and i got a lot of roles like i was in the arnold schwarzenegger movie and i was in any murphy movie and some other stuff but then eventually i was like i don't want to just be the albino guy and everything <laughs> so i had to kind of like revamp my career and start producing and directing more so that i could get more roles <laughs> that were more uh fun and more broad do you have anything that's shooting soon are you involved in anything that's about to go into camera um well i mean we have stuff that we're developing uh but recently i I was in a stand-up comedy special called bring back laughs that's i think on apple tv right now um and it's me bring bring back laughs laughs and it's me um paula poundstone janine garofalo hannibal hannibal bress um Roy, roy wood jr uh carmen lynch a lot of good funny people in it it was shot during the pandemic Got it. Thank you. I'll look for that for sure. No problem. Well. All right. I would love to know what your most, like, excited moment of meeting a fellow comic. Like, for Greg and I, it was we went to see Dave Chappelle recently. Okay. And we were really just totally believing that we were going to be able to walk to the backstage door and get him on this podcast, okay. which added a lot of excitement to us, like going to the show. And at the time it was at the height of his cancel culture thing that came out around his um, recent show on Netflix. And, but we didn't care. We were just like, we love Dave. And we went into that and it was really one of the heights of us, but it was also sort of, scary humbling because we were stupid enough to think we could talk to the management about getting him on the show. So what's an, uh, a similar thing for you, like something you did where you kind of stepped out, but it was because you really loved the person you wanted to go see, or what was a really exciting moment in your comedy career where you met or were, were part of something special? Um, well, I, I guess the most exciting time in my comedy career was, uh, was probably the moment my very first big TV appearance, um, which was uh, on the uh, Conan O'Brien show, Late Night with Conan O'Brien. And then so like that was a moment where it like legitimized my career for my family, you know, for like every like to be on TV shaking Conan O'Brien's hand. And he's like, great stuff. Good comedy. And you're like, yeah, good comedy. Like that was just like the big moment for me like because up until then my whole career was like wishing i was on tv and then suddenly i was like one of those guys on tv it was amazing and did that help you with booking more stand-up oh people were like are you on conan o'brien <laughs> no thanks no yeah it did help a lot <laughs> <laughs> wait <laughs> I was looking at a bit of your stand-up that you have on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I did not see any routines based on your blindness or your albinism. Do you? I, do I talk about it? Yes, I talk about it a lot, actually. But I don't talk about it only because I don't want to be. I mean, and and you know, there are a lot of uh, performers who are like, I'm the, I'm the, uh, I'm the overweight guy who eats too many tacos, and right, that's what right. they talk about for an hour, you know, right, and then right. so. I was like, I wanted to be very clear. I wanted to be very clear to people that I'm not hiding behind any sort of gimmick. I'm legit funny. <laughs> so I on purpose, but I don't ignore also being uh, albinism or my vision, but I, I just don't talk about it all the time. So you've you know? consciously not put those pieces of the routine online. Oh no, I've put pieces like that online. No, I, 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 I mean, there are some pieces online um, about, 
albinism. In fact, they do really well. Like if I put, if I put like, um, if I put it on, you know, like a reel or something like that, it'll get like thousands of views usually. Um, but yeah, so there are pieces like that online, but, uh, I just don't do it a lot. I just don't, I mean, I, I, I have a 15%, uh, uh, quota in my mind. So like only 15% of my material is about my physical appearance period. Well, it was very strong for me what I saw because I was expecting that kind of knee jerk response. Oh, he's going to talk about his blindness and all. And when it didn't show up, I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. And like you just said, I took you as a funny guy. Yeah, exactly. There was no hook or gimmick other than funny. Exactly. And and the thing is, like, um, I, I I say this phrase a lot, which is I want people to know that I'm an I want people to know that I am a a talent, and and you know maybe they don't think I'm a talent, but I'm going to function like I'm a uh, like I'm a talent. I'm going to function like I don't have to lean on a particular sort of uh, I don't have to lean on a gimmick, and I want people to I want to be. Uh, Peter Dinklage, not Vern Troyer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. I mean, I like Vern Troyer. <laughs> He's great. I don't want to, I want my career to be more like Peter Dinklage's. <laughs> yeah. Right. I heard Peter's coming out with something that he's been attempting to develop for over a decade. And now it's finally coming to fruition. So. Now he finally has the clout to get it made. Yeah, well, you just hear from everyone, Scott. There's, so that's kind of a question I have, too. Um, you earlier in this podcast referred to yourself as a D-list entertainer, you know, some clout. <laughs> I thought it was a bit tongue-in-cheek, probably, but... No, you, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> well, here's what I'm wondering. I mean, you, one of my friends is Eric Andre, okay? his When we're hanging out together, it's very apparent. <laughs> <laughs> it's very apparent that he's A-list and I'm D-list. That is funny. <laughs> yeah, because uh, he's the getting way people all the react numbers. To us, <laughs> the way well, people re- I mean, you can see what an A-list entertainer's life is like. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I'm wondering. Do you have still the psych psychological challenge of oh this may just all fall apart like i'm just barely keeping it together i don't think that anymore i know that i'm going to be uh i know that i'm going to be uh working in entertainment and successful for a long time i mean there may have been times in the past when i thought that and especially during the pandemic where where like i said when i was I was previously, I was a producer on the love and hip hop franchise and I stopped doing that. And I started kind of like pursuing my life as an entrepreneur. Then the pandemic hit. And so all business was like slowed down to a crawl. At that point, I was like, maybe I do have to hang it up because like nothing was happening. And I just, I just uh, changed how I did my career, but now we're past that. So a lot of entrepreneurs have to pivot. And that's one of the key things that delineates your capacity as an entrepreneur entrepreneur is to, to be able to like, pivot and then there's also a kind of a kind of addiction so i'm going to ask you um it's kind of like a 12-step thing when was the last time you registered a domain uh the last time i registered a domain uh that was three days ago (laughs) right see see (laughs) (laughs) you first have to more powerless against the domain gods yeah yeah. it was three days ago um that was uh bookafire.ai Hello, my name is Mark Went and I'm an entrepreneur. It's been seven days since I registered a domain. What was the last domain you registered? Uh, Oh, it was a week ago. Oh, no. Um, Oh, I can't remember it. It's on my browser menu and I don't have it in in my brain right now. important at the time. That's really funny, but awesome. (laughs) I mean, I, I love the I love the the question about when's the last time you registered a domain. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. I know people who have like fifty domains that just sit there for years and years and years. And, um, yeah, I mean, because like it's it is. I so there's like a lot of people who talk about like how to make money as a um, just how to make money in general. And then recently I was like, I think there's like four things that can make you money. 
and that like people, if you can fulfill these four things, then you make money. Okay. So like one of the four things, you don't have to fill them all. If you're selling something that people think will make, they think it'll make them money. If you're selling something that people think will sell or save them money, or if you're selling something that that will make people happy, like makes them really happy about something or something that they really need. So those, if, if whatever you're selling falls into those four categories, then people will buy it. The only question next is just like, how much will they buy it for? Right. Do you think part of that answer to that question is you um, placing yourself in a manner which is in essence marketing the value? As an example, like a cup of coffee, Starbucks has been able to market it as like it's worth four bucks for this cup of coffee. Where uh-huh. So is that part of your process as you think of how you're going to put your products out into the world? Um, well, I mean, knowing who I'm selling to and then also creating a brand definitely are part of the process. I mean, I feel like I feel like Starbucks, it's just become a standard and, the, and that which is something amazing that they did. I was actually watching a documentary about Starbucks one time because when Starbucks started, I think it was in Korea, it wasn't popular at first. And then they figured out how to make start because like people wouldn't want people refused to work there. And then they they had to change how Starbucks dealt with the community in order to get people to work at Starbucks. It it was either in Korea or Japan. I'm not sure which, but uh, it's really interesting to think about like, even at that level, sometimes, sometimes a company that is so well oiled like Starbucks and they know how to make money, they go to another community and it's just different. And so they start to change too. Yeah. I'm reading a book right now by the CEO, the guy who started Starbucks and it's around 2007, 2008, and they had to pivot. And it is interesting to read these human elements that, you know, I think of Starbucks and I just picture this machine. Yeah. There's really very human elements to the creation of what it is. Uh, yeah, definitely. It is. I mean, and that's part of every company, too. Like, there are the human elements uh, behind every company. Right. A quick question. Have you found that the world is willing to give you what you value yourself as, as you, the brand, Victor, like when you're producing or directing or acting or doing stand-up? Um, no. I found that the world overvalues everyone. At least it will. The world will pay everyone way more money than they're probably worth. Um uh, but you know, also the world doesn't pay anybody what they're worth because it's arbitrary. It doesn't really mean anything. I was thinking about this recently because for instance, like when, when I, when I really examined my life like years back and I was like, okay, what am I doing? What do I want to do? <laughs> like, this is my life. Like, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And then I was like, and I came to a lot of realizations, but one thing is that like that, like anybody can like make, a crap load of money doing anything really you can it's you just have to figure it out and 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 i my proof of that is that whatever you want to do think about the fact that whatever you want to do there's already somebody out there uh doing that same thing worse and they're a millionaire so you could do it <laughs> and so anybody can make money doing anything or anybody can make no money doing anything i can i i can draw I can draw on a napkin and my napkin is more valuable than your napkin because I'm a New Yorker cartoonist, but does that really mean anything? Who cares? We could both make drawings, but it's just, it's just that somehow we've convinced the world that if you've drawn in this particular magazine, everything you draw is worth more money than what everybody else draws. So for people who are still on the other side of that concept, who are, still exploring their worthiness and still taking their creativity and trying to make it into a stream of income. What do you think is the thing that delineates that, that process and gets you over the line? I actually know exactly what it is. And I have, and I have, I have a future vision for a company that takes advantage of that and helps so many people, but here's, here's what it is. Most people 
it's fear. So most people are scared of making the leap or doing the thing that will, uh, like they, they, most people are scared of making the leap on their own. That's it. And so, um, for instance, uh, you could make $200,000 a year washing cars three days a week. You could, because, uh, there's a business model that works 90% of the time. It's called a mobile car wash. Anybody can do it. Um, and, uh, and basically it's just, it's just, it's just having a mobile car washing, mobile car washing equipment, which costs $50, start washing a car in a parking lot when people, washing a car in a parking lot when uh, people are, uh, going to shop or whatever and have a t-shirt on that says, while you shop, I could wash your car too. And you, and that will, and you wash the cars in place while people shop, you'll make a lot of money. You will. Uh, it's, it, the people do it in England all the time. Okay. And so, and so, but people don't know that those models exist. And even those people who do know that those models exist, they're like, oh, it won't work for me or I could never do that or I'm not going to, I'm not going to try it or whatever. So, but, so think about it this way. If there was a company, that researched these 90% bulletproof business model ideas. And what they did was they presented, presented them to people as a job. So if I was like, I'm hiring, if I put out a things like I'm hiring, it pays, you know, it pays $1,500 a week, uh, washing cars three days a week, I'd get a lot of uh, applications and all they would have to do is the same instructions that they would have to do with this, doing it on, doing it on their own, except I'm providing, like, say, I will give you, I will give you like a salary, but I know that this, this thing makes way above whatever salary I'm offering. And what if that was a business just researching business models and then offering them to people as jobs? Like that should be a thing. So what you're saying is mindset is like the first key mm-hmm. thing. You have to shift your mindset to one of possibility. And then what's the second step? Is it doing the work, taking the actions? Because yeah, for would a say while, you're going to have to start up that business, right? You have to stand it up. Yeah, but I would say that the smartest thing you could do is research. I, in fact, this is what I said. I, I, knowing what I know now, like if I were, if it were six years ago, and I knew what I knew now, it would take me six months to get to the, a position which I would call functionally wealthy. I think this is the smartest way to stand yourself up on your own, which is you should research the hell out of whatever business you want to do and see how it actually makes money and where money actually comes from. Um, find out how that business grows. And this is all research you can do. You And, and not only that, you can do it with chat GPT and you, you work much faster. And then just research the hell out of it. Do it in a small way, like something you can do part-time and make just like a little bit of money. You don't have to make a lot, just a little bit to show that your business works. Then uh, make projections and then find an investor because there are plenty out there who if you show them a thing that works, they'll give you money because that's what they want to do. And they, they want to give money to people who know what they're doing. And so find an investor that knows what they're doing. Within that investment, part of that investment is your, is your salary is your weekly salary. Okay. And then, so basically all you have to do is research this business, business plan, this business idea, start doing it a little bit so that it makes a little bit of money. And then, and then show your business plan, the fact that you've made a little bit of money and your projections to an investor, uh, who is worth their salt and get them to seriously listen to you. And, and then they would, invest in your plan, which will give you the salary. So basically you're functionally wealthy, meaning you're doing 24 seven, what you want to do as a job, your career, and you're paying yourself a salary. How does that apply to stand up comedy? Um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, for me as a stand up comedian, uh, there's a lot of things that go with stand up comedy and being a stand up comedian is actually one of those things that is, it, it can be very profitable. I have friends who like tour, like who you don't know their name, but they're road comics and they make 80, 80 grand to 150 grand a year, just as like an unknown comic who just tours the country. Uh, there's business models for everything. You just need to research them and know what they are. Uh, also, here's a, here's a quick tip for anybody who's a stand up comedian. Uh, write a book, write a, write a book that you can bring to shows with you because any show that you do, uh, people will buy books from you and any show you do, you just make more money. 
That's brilliant. I love this. Thank you so much for your generosity around this this issue. And um, I have an invention that I want to bring to market, and I'm going to use this advice. In fact, that that was the uh, domain that I registered the other day. But Greg oh, and I have a deal we where we, okay, <laughs> Greg and I have a deal where we don't self promote on this show. So okay. I'm going to leave that to your imagination for now. Um, I'm also coming to the point where I might have to break away from this suddenly. And so if for some reason I disappear again, I just want to thank you now, Victor. I really enjoyed our conversation so far. And um, um, how does we how do we make anti-racism funnier? Um, How do you make how do you make anti-racism funnier? I don't know. I don't know if it gets much funnier than my book. That book is hella funny. From what I thought. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, because I don't. I don't know. There's a lot of anti-racism comedy out there. So. How many people did you bring together to collaborate on that book? Um, one. His name no, is Victor. No. I wrote and illustrated the book. No, but on the news show, I watched the the NBC show. I think it was okay. And there was another gentleman that it seemed like. Oh no no no! That was the that was a um. So when the book first started, there was an art exhibit, and the art exhibit had a bunch of different black uh, New Yorker cartoonists in it. So that the in a in the NBC thing was the art exhibit, which also included my book, which I uh, which I created with okay. a bunch of other okay. uh, black New Yorker cartoonists. Because I saw you talking about how you wanted to bring together these black cartoonists who had never really been in a spot together. Yeah, it was the first ever Black New Yorker cartoonist uh, exhibition because up until that year we didn't really all exist. There were no there were no Black New Yorker cartoonists. Oh, <laughs> it, the, the, it's it's been a it's been a recent hiring frenzy of the New Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> black cartoonists. Let's get right instead of white. <laughs> what do you think of the recorded? Um, comedy routine business like it used to be that you would buy an album by Richard Pryor or something like that is that something that you still include in your model are you going to release albums of your sets or anything like that yeah I'm actually putting out my first solo album this year well my first special I'm going to do my first my first solo special I did have a I did have a an album that I released for fun, um, which was a show I did in Pittsburgh, and we just like mixed it down and just released it. That's actually for free online. But uh, yeah, I'm just having my first solo special coming up. So, would you use the same model that you described as a comedian having a book to have a vinyl LP that's a, a an album of one of your standups? I wouldn't, because who has a record player? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. White people. <laughs> I would be like, uh, no, I mean, it, it's, 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 I think it's like, I love random shit. I do. I love it. But I'm also like learning that you have to also consider when you're doing stuff like, you know, if you're going to do a vinyl album, okay, maybe you're trying to write off the vinyl album as a loss because there's not going to be a lot of people who can buy it. Who can actually, who can use it? There's not a lot of people. And so you're, you're pigeonholing your uh, revenue. To the right. You're, you're self-limiting at that point. You're capping mm-hmm. your own revenue stream. And that Definitely. all those hours that go into that process are hours that are never captured for another more profitable enterprise. True. Yeah. Are you looking at Spotify, Apple Music to release your album that's coming up? Uh, yeah, we'll see. What Here's my plan. So I've never released an album of mine myself. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to all my friends who've released albums and made a lot of money with their albums. And I'm before I do anything, I'm going to know exactly how to release it. Like, like basically, for instance, right now I'm doing... Um, I'm doing book projects where I like help people. I help people write books like, um, where I'll, I'll, so like if somebody wants to write a book, I can come to them and help them write a book by, uh, interviewing them. So they generate the material for the book. And then I use AI to generate a first draft. And then I can like, uh, then a real person will polish the, the writing. And so I'm helping people get to their first draft really fast. But then as part of that, I had to research like, okay, then how do books make money? How can this, how can this process make money to the point where, to the point where, uh, here's something that's really an interesting fact and, and, and it is totally reasonable. Uh, so with, with Amazon ads, 
with Amazon ads, you spend $2,000 on Amazon ads, you can sell a thousand books. Okay. And that doesn't sound crazy. That means that every book you sell, it costs you $2 to get somebody to buy it. But think about this. You sell a thousand books on Amazon as a self-published person. Each book costs, say, $30 a book. Okay. $30 a book, $25 a book, whatever. Your profit on that book is going to be about $15. Mm-hmm. You, Here you go. And you find that that's like in the 90 percentile, someone who's spending $2,000 on Amazon ads is selling a thousand books. Yeah, it's totally doable. I mean, it's like it's it's Amazon ads are is an ad system that not a lot of people know about. The ads only come up when people search for certain things like around your book. So. And and then it shows it to so many people and you only pay for those people who click. And then so so you have to show it to a whole lot of people, two thousand dollars worth of people, in fact, <laughs> but that's enough to get a thousand sales. And then and then then if you so so getting that that's that's dumb sales. What I'm calling dumb sales are sales where like you don't know what the book is about, you don't know who wrote it, it's just a book. Okay, for with about two thousand dollars, you can sell a thousand of most just dumb books. But now take that and make the book good, and then like here's a for instance. There's a guy I know who I'm working on a book with. Uh, with well, hopefully working on a book with. We're we're actually talking right now, but he is a former corporate forensic investigator. And then one of the things that he did in his lifetime was he tried to find. Hitler's gold. Okay. So like that was, he was assigned to the case to find Hitler's gold. And I was like, yeah, that would be a book. And so now, now think about this $2,000 on an Amazon ad for a book that is about the guy who tried to find Hitler's gold. Now you're thinking, Oh, of course that would sell more than a thousand copies. Um, but the book costs the same to produce. Right. And then you get into the intellectual property, which we were just talking with a gentleman last week about. And because what you just described sounds like a shoe in for a TV series or movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so basically what I've done with my so so this app that I made that I was trying to just like slough off and not do work for my podcast and ebook has turned into an app where like, oh, now I can generate generate first drafts of books within a couple of hours rather than months. Did you program the AI behind Book of Fire? Yeah. And uh, I, I programmed the AI and designed the entire the entire method, which includes AI, AI prompts, and uh, normal ag- algorithmic programming as well. So there's like lots of regular programming and lots of AI stuff and lots of uh, very specific uh, prompt creation. And then and that, that whole system is uh, now patent pending. Wow. And is that accessible if I wanted to go start my book? Is that already available? And what's the URL? Not only is it accessible, if you go to Product Hunt right now and search for Magic Bookifier, uh, you can get 10 free credits because uh, there's a there's a credit code on Product Hunt, and you can just go and drop it in far around. All right. We'll have to put that in the text. <laughs> we will. Um, I've got to bounce, guys. I've reached my time limit. Victor, thank you for your generosity of heart, your brilliance, your insight. I love it. Thank you so much. And we'll be talking to you soon. No problem. Nice to nice to meet you. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. And goodbye. <laughs> there he's gone. I have two more questions and we can wrap up. Okay. One, is there a story behind your domain, Supreme Robot? Yeah, I love robots. And the very first movie that I made the very first short film was called Roboto Supremo. Roboto Supremo. All right. Okay. Now this last question is um, kind of a kicker. Eminem or Foo Fighters? Eminem. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't know if I can name, I, can, I don't think I can name one Foo Fighters song. I mean, I, if you played them, I'd be like, oh yeah, I, I remember this song, but I mean, yeah, Eminem in this case. <laughs> All right, that's it. Is there anything else you'd like to touch upon that we haven't delved into? Um, no, uh, it's been really good. Uh, I'm doing. I'm trying to promote Wikilisten, which is my podcast, my daily podcast where we talk about Wikipedia pages. 
And if any of your fans want us to do read any particular Wikipedia page, please reach out and we'll dedicate an episode to you. And we'll I'll do it for you too. If you want us to read a page, Greg, we'll uh, okay. dedicate an, dedicate well, an episode to you too. Speaking of Wikipedia, because on your Wikipedia page, it says you were born in Gary, Indiana, but you um, grew up in Huntsville, Alabama. That's true. Born in Gary, Indiana, moved to Huntsville, Alabama. So how old were you when you moved to Huntsville? I must have been like five, four or five, like not, not very old. I mean, I wasn't carrying the boxes at the time. And were you near when you were born? Were you near the original home of the Jackson five? I don't know. Ah. My, da- my dad, my dad says that he saw the Jackson five performing in a bar when they were young. Like he would see them in Gary, like doing stuff in bars and stuff like that. And I believe him. Cause that's the type of places my dad loves to hang out at bars with live, like R and B music and stuff like that. So yeah, that would, it would make sense. Yeah. That's wild. All right. So well, again, thank you for your time. Uh, if our paths cross again, it'll mean I've done something right because uh, you're on a good path, and I'd love to have sympathetic reasons to join together. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. Recording stopped. <laughs>